Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a, it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. That's the second time it's gone off. They never go home, they never go home, they never go home, those, those, those boys. That's... Yeah. They have asked for that, really. Well, you can laugh. I'm the World Cup. I'm a little bit of an idealist, but having said that, I want to be like me. But you know what you're talking about. What did you want? I'd say it to your face, not say it to now. What you're doing down here, you're showing me, man. It's December 27th, a time when many people are still taking it easy, unplugging, de-stressing, enjoying time with loved ones. But, as ever, there was a bunch of football on the 26th, and you know what that means. It's our annual second captain's Scrooge football show with Jonathan Wilson. Uh, there was some sensational action yesterday. Arsenal won five nil against Norwich. Uh, myself and Jonathan didn't talk about that, uh, as uh, we spent nearly forty minutes on this podcast on Thursday talking about how incredible Arsenal are. And the bad news uh, for Arsenal supporters is that Michael Jerry, also an Arsenal supporter, believes that their recent good run isn't fooled, isn't getting carried away by their recent good run. He believes it is merely an artifact of a winnable run of fixtures. So time will tell. On that one. Chelsea won 3 1. We didn't talk about that either. Uh, the big Chelsea game is probably the one next Sunday, January 2nd, at Stamford Bridge against Liverpool. Uh, so I'm sure this day next week, uh, we're going to be talking a lot of Chelsea. What did we talk about? Well, uh, we, t- we, talked about, um, we talked about that crazy Manchester City, Leicester City game. Uh, and we also got into um, Jonathan's new novel, Streltsov, which I'll let him explain to you when the time comes. So, I guess without further fanfare, it's time for Scrooge Football 2021 with Jonathan Wilson. It's like something you would expect to see in a porno movie. Joe, go down Temple Bar, you see them coming out of pubs, vomiting, mm. having sex on the side of the street. It's like something you would expect to see in a porno movie. You know, is that the normal we want in this country? You know, we're supposed to be civilised. As far as I can see, this country is getting more barbaric. Well, I imagined it was like something you would expect to see in a porno movie. What would you see in a porno movie, Mary? Jonathan Wilson, it's great to have you on the annual Scrooge show. I hope you haven't been enjoying Christmas too much. Uh, not not too much, no. It's, it's been all right. I uh, haven't done a lot. I've eaten quite a bit. I haven't, haven't drunk an excessive amount. I've had, had quite a nice time. Caught up on MasterChef. Oh, MasterChef, right. But MasterChef isn't yeah. about the 1917 
revolution um it's <laughs> it's not starring i can't i can't remember the other ingredients what can you just fill people in if people haven't been uh, glued to your twitter feed over the last couple of days <laughs> um you have a complicated system for deciding whether or not you can watch a film um in the christmas period yeah this this began last year because i was unexpectedly stuck in london with a friend uh, after holidays had to be cancelled and it's the first time that i've been in London alone at Christmas because uh, of various, yeah, families all disappeared now. So um, so watching films becomes sort of a big part of the day to give yourself something to focus around. So I made the argument last year that Dr. Zhivago is the perfect Christmas film on the grounds it, it's quite long and it has snow in it. Mm. The and snow then, looks very fake, though, I think, in Dr. Zhivago. You know, it, yeah. you know, I've never seen snow that I've so clearly saying, well, that's fake snow. Uh, yes, I well, certainly some of it is real. It was filmed in Spain mm. uh, during the winter. I, I think the fake snow of Nicholas and Alexander, which I, I watched this Christmas Day, was is actually faker. I think it's worse. That film is about uh, um, the Tsar, the last, the, the last Romanovs. Yes, exactly. Mm. Um, it's got an amazing cast of uh, Brian Cox is in it playing Trotsky, which is quite odd. <laughs> Very good. Um, Fiona Fullerton's playing Anastasia. Uh, she she'd only be about 16 in it. Um, but you, you know, when you suddenly see something, you think, oh, hang on, I recognise her, who's that? Uh, and yeah, finally dawned on me, it was Fiona Fullerton. Um, so, I yeah, have no I, idea I, who Fiona Fullerton is, but... Oh, she's um, uh, she's in View to a Kill. She's, oh, okay, yeah, I, I did see that. She, she's sort of the main Bond girl in that, other than um, Grace Jones. Mm. But, what is, um, but what is the system? Oh, so, yeah, so from, from Zhivago, uh, decided last Christmas uh, to only watch films um, either starring Alec Guinness or directed by David Lean. So we also watched uh, Kind Hearts and Cornets with Alec Guinness, which is, is very, very good, actually. I was surprised by, it's genuinely a funny comedy from, like the, I don't know, when late 40s, early 50s. Uh, and we watched David Copperfield, um, also David Lean, and, and uh, also has uh, Alec Guinness in it. Uh, Oliver Twist, I've got lined up for later this week, which is David Lean, Alec Guinness, and Dickens, as Great Expectations is. So there's these four interlocking circles, which I think is the, the biggest Venn diagram, most complex Venn diagram you can do in two dimensions. Uh, so it's got to be directed by David Lean, it's got to star Alec Guinness, it's got to be about the 1917 Revolution, as Nicholas Alexandra and Dr. Chivago are, or it's got to be an adaptation of of Dickens as Oliver Twist and David Copperfield are. Yeah. And do you know how many um, films you're uh, limited to seeing now? I mean, is this one of those six degrees to Kevin Bacon thing, which, which actually includes, you know, hundreds of thousands of films? Well, it's obviously a lot. Alec Guinness was in a lot of films. David Lean did, must have directed, I don't know, I'm going to guess between 15 and 20 films. Um, you've got Bridge Over River Kwai. It's, it's, that's Alec Guinness as well, isn't it? David Lean and Alec Guinness work together a lot. Uh, Lawrence of Arabia. Uh, which I saw the remastered version when it came out, the 50th anniversary. It came out, when would that have been? I, I remember, it was, it's so long, there's an intermission. And Sunderland beat Reading that night, I remember, because uh, it was 2-0 during the intermission, and we won it 3-0. Um, so it must be, oh, I don't know, it must be 10 years ago. Um, so was, I mean, David Lean's just quality. You know, it's, there's no bad David Lean film. Passage to India. Mm. Um, oh, Ryan's daughter. Is, Ryan's daughter is generally considered Ryan's daughter. Bad, so, right, yeah. Although, is it a bad film? Well, I mean, everyone said so at the time, but I think that was probably just anti-Irish prejudice. 
Yeah. Uh, the problem is Dickens obviously didn't write about the 1917 revolution, uh, which you can't really blame him for. Um, but I, 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 I hold out hope that uh, the, the, there are, you know, an adaptation of Dickens set in the 1917 revolution. I, mean, I, I think, you know, Oliver Twist could easily be transposed to, to St. Petersburg during the, during the First World War. What do you think uh, David Lean would have made of Manchester City Six, Leicester City Three? Uh, what would he have made of the 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 mindless um, uh, sort of thrills and spills, uh, the utter chaos, the utter <laughs> bizarreness, the the utter inexplicability of the fifteen minute period in which Leicester City, after being comprehensively trounced. Off the off the field, just humiliated, wiped away. It was like stop the fight, stop the fight. Um, they suddenly they have this fifteen minute period where everything they do slices through Manchester City. Um, they can't be stopped. They look irresistible. They look like one of the greatest teams ever to play the game. That goes on for for twelve fifteen minutes, and then it's back to Manchester City just scoring goals. And the match finished six six three, which sounds six three. Whenever you hear a match finish six three, it always sounds like a really interesting match. Was this that? Um, well, it wasn't because City were four 0 up when it became interesting. I, I, I mean, I, I don't think Leicester did sort of fold again, did they? Because I mean, they had there was the Ian Acho chance when they were would have made it five four. There was the Old Brighton header which would have made it five four. I mean, Leicester basically conceded two really soft goals from set plays, which has been a problem for them all season. Uh, and what we saw in that second half is City are still vulnerable to teams who break effectively. Now that might be because Rodri wasn't there. And I think Rodri's been very good this season and, and has helped them defend against the counter. But, you know, we've seen Leicester do this to City before. I mean, uh, near the beginning of last season, they won 5-2 at the Etihad. Uh, Pep's first season, they beat them, I want to say 4-0, but it might have been 4-1. They got those four very early goals at the, at the King Power. So there's something about the way Leicester play clearly does rattle City. Uh, I guess the surprise is that suddenly happens when it's 4-0 and maybe that's to do with City slightly switching off and, and just losing a bit of defensive focus. But I think it's, you know, it, it, it speaks well of this Leicester side that even with all the injuries, even 4-0 down, um, that they, yeah, they, they, they are still capable of coming out in the second half and um, you know, at least having a bit of pride to play for yeah. and then actually turning it into something that might have been a bit more. The key figure for them, I suppose, was was Madison. Um, you know, he did a lot in that sort of spell, including drawing a save from Ederson that was like the one that he drew from Ramsdale um, earlier, the, the, the saving saving a shot, uh, dipping shot onto the bar. Um, and, you know, he... he and the, the moment when he took both Laporte and Diaz out of the game with two touches uh, was one to remember. He's, I mean, where do, you, where do you think he stands at the moment, Madison? Because he's kind of been left behind a bit. I mean, I remember it's not that long since he was sort of vying with Grealish as the, you know, oh, who will Gareth Southgate, you know, pick? And Grealish obviously kind of just completely strode away from him. But there in that game yesterday... Madison was kind of the star uh, creator in the game, and Grealish is watching in a sulk uh, from from the bench where he's been put to stew for disciplinary reasons. I mean, I think Madison had a he had a slow start of the season, didn't he? Um, but the last sort of six weeks or so, he's been back to his best. Um, 
I, I guess Leicester aren't playing as well this season as they were last season. So maybe it hasn't been as obvious. Maybe it's been a bit is harder. Is he for him. that good? Though? I mean, what, what do you what do you actually make of him? Clearly, he does have you know a lot of ability in some ways. But like, is he a player on Grealish's level? I mean, Grealish is, is obviously the most expensive English player of all time, even if he's currently not in the Man City team. Is Madison on that level? Should a should a bigger club than Leicester? I mean, Leicester, who obviously have won the Premier League and the FA Cup pretty recently, and are one of the biggest clubs currently in <laughs> English football. But should one of the more traditional, you know, Arsenal or somebody like that, be saying, "Let's sign this guy"? Well, I mean, there's a um, there's an implicit assumption in your question, which is that Grealish is of that level, which I have to say, I'm I've never been entirely convinced by. Um, I mean, maybe, yeah, maybe, and, and you know, plenty of players, plenty of forward players, especially wide forward players, have, have started slowly under Guardiola. And it's been the second season when they, you know, they've, they've really blossomed, and that that may may happen with Grealish. Uh, but I mean, I certainly wasn't one of those desperate for Grealish to be in the England. So team. you still, you actually think that maybe Madison is just as good as Grealish? I think that the a similar category. I mean, there's slightly different styles of player, but I think the similar category of player in that. I think they're really good for those sort of upper mid-table teams, uh, such as Villa or Leicester, uh, who have aspirations you know, maybe one day to qualify for Champions League, um, certainly to be relatively regular Europa League participants, maybe to win a cup, um, where the the game can sort of sort of flow through them in a way that you can't quite do with the very best teams. Um, so I, I, I mean I don't know it's, it's difficult to know it's possible Madison could go to I mean it's also I know Arsenal are, are currently having a better season than Leicester but over the last five years would you say Arsenal have a step up on Leicester I'm not really sure no I mean the vet, that, Jamie Vardy made that call you know I mean he was he was the guy yeah. presented with the actual with the choice and, and I mean you can't say that he that you know he's he has been vindicated in deciding not to join Arsenal in was it 2017 yeah um and then he's, I mean, is is replace of Madison at say City or Liverpool or Chelsea? I can't really see that. So I'm not really sure which other club at the moment you could say is a is an obvious step. So I, I mean, and I actually think yeah. we're we're far too we're far too quick or we're far too keen to sort of impose these narrative narrative some players that they. Yeah, they they they're playing well. They're comfortable. They're, they're they're happy where they are. They're I don't know scoring a dozen goals a season, setting up another dozen, and their team sort of you know in that sort of fifth to eighth bracket, which I guess Leicester aren't at the minute. But yeah, the, the injuries are a pretty. You you, you would expect them to be there definitely. Yeah, and even if they're not this season, I I just don't think it's when they've had the injuries they've had. I don't think it's you can really blame them for that. Um, do we? Is it, who does it really benefit if they move and end up playing sort of a dozen games a season at at a bigger club? And I think you saw that. I mean, maybe it's a different, slightly different case in terms of his personality. But I also felt that with Ed Nazar that uh, I, th- I think Nazar's not a player who's sort of particularly driven in the way that other players are driven, which is fine. I mean, if that's who he is, that's who he is. And I sort of think he was happy at Chelsea. He was comfortable at Chelsea. Um, obviously, like life in, in London... Um, and and there was this sort of constant demand. Oh, he's got to go to a to a really big club, and he does. And okay, he's a bit unlucky that he gets injured. and He hadn't really had a long term injury before that, but it yeah you know, he he's sort of almost forgotten about now. As I you know, he's just another one of those players who went to Real Madrid and it didn't work. And maybe players, 
I don't know, because it's, it's easy to criticise players for not showing ambition, but sometimes maybe you've just got to accept that this is this is good, I'm enjoying this, I'm happy. Do I need to to, to, to go bigger? Yeah. Uh, do you think Grealish uh, is, is regretting his move at this point? I mean, you know, I, I know it's, it's a kind of a well-worn thing at this stage, and it's it's. I, I would say... You, you will probably say, look, it's too soon to say with Grealish how things are going to go at Man City. Obviously, Pep Guardiola takes a bit of getting used to it and so on. It hasn't gone well, though. No, it hasn't. It hasn't. Uh, I mean, he, he started the first seven games of the season, I think. And there were little flickers in that. I mean, I, I was at that game when they lost to Tottenham on the opening day. And he looked completely lost in that game. Um, but, yeah, you'd say similar. I think Sterling's first season didn't go great. Mahrez certainly didn't go particularly well. Uh, you know, it, it can take time for those of us. And I think yeah, it was a very basic thing that... I mean, it's not just that he's no longer the biggest fish. He's got to learn to fit in with everybody else. And I think certainly there were signs early in the season that he was a little bit tentative, that whereas previously he'd taken on the defender, he sort of felt the need to sort of check back and, and, and Absolutely. keep possession. And like he's really second-guessing himself because like it's like everything that sort of comes naturally to him to do... Pep Guardiola's like wagging his finger like no don't do that you know yeah stop, stop take your ego out of this you know you're part of a team now and blah 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 and it's just it's he's just seems that kind of like oh no I, I just I don't want to do what I or I, I can't do what I feel like I want to do yeah he's, he's lost faith in what he what he used to come instinctively and I think the other thing that's that's difficult for him is you know the, the way the way Grealish played at at Villa was he playing left and drift in and he always had Matt Target going outside him, which just draws the fullback out slightly, just creates that space and he can cut in onto his onto his right foot. Well, he, he, that's not how it works, you see, because Cancelo goes inside, not outside. So suddenly Grealish then becomes the, the decoy. Um, and you know, if you look at their touches in the final third, I mean, what Cancelo's thirty-five touches per ninety in the final third. Grealish is thirty-eight. So yeah, it's pretty much the same. The, the Cancelo is is yeah essentially as attacking as as Grealish, and I, I, I you know it doesn't really matter who you are. I think that must take a lot of getting used to. It's a totally different style of football, um, even just in that component. Never mind all the other stuff about having to remember what position to take up, having to remember where you have to be to stop the opposition countering, yeah, you know, not being able just to kind of take the ball yourself because you're not actually obviously the best player anymore. You might have Phil Foden inside you, you might have Raheem Sterling inside you, you might have Bernardo Silva inside you, who are you know, just as capable of doing something with the ball. And there's so, so much pressure to to maintain possession, not to lose it by taking on a, a man too many. So I think you know, you've seen his sort of confidence in his natural game has gone. And, and that, that is, I think that is part of the process of learning how to play for Guardiola. But... He hasn't come out the other side yet, and I guess there is a danger he doesn't come out the other side. Yeah, well, you know, at the same time though, his his um, dreams are a, a mere uh, speck on the windshield of the juggernaut of Manchester City's uh, <laughs> unstoppable, unstoppable cruise towards um, a four title in five years. It looks like. I mean, the form that they're in the moment is just. I mean, what they've scored in the last uh, it's eighteen goals in the last four league games. And that's pretty good. Yeah, I mean, you know, we, we had all that sort of excitement uh, at sort of the, the third of the waypoint of the season of, oh, we could have a you know, a, a genuine three-horse title race uh, since when Chelsea was stopping able to defend. Um, 
Liverpool haven't really done much wrong, but uh, well, they they, they lost to, points. They lost points against Tottenham and uh, and, and, Tottenham. and have had a postponement, which has now created a sort of a six a six point gap. You know, um, even yeah, though they've got. I, a game I, I, I think we're starting to see that the squad is a it's it's smaller than City's essentially, and so you know that I mean yeah, Tottenham played pretty well against Liverpool, but. Uh, to what extent was that down to the, the midfield Liverpool had out, which clearly was nothing like the the midfield they'd have, they'd have liked to have out. Um, so I, I think there was always that sense that, I mean, actually any of those three sides were capable of suddenly putting together a run of 10 or a dozen or even 15 wins in a row and City were the most likely. And sure enough, City, don't know what, is it nine wins in a row now for City? Um, yeah, some, uh, let me see. They've lost. They lost to Leipzig, and since then, yeah, but in, in the, the league, it's... they lost to Palace on the on the thirtieth of October. And since then, every every match in the league has been a win. So yeah, yeah, it's a lot of wins. It's a it's a real string. You put together a string of wins like that, and you start to move away. And and uh, and that does seem to be a modern type title race. Is a but yeah, that's how it works. I mean, even Chelsea under Conte had that. Was it was that seventeen wins in a row suddenly and and. Yeah, through the yeah. through the middle of the season, so yeah. it does create a slightly anticlimactic uh, dynamic, uh, just in in terms of if, when it becomes clear by you know February that there's a team that's that's won the league. Um, although that hasn't that hasn't happened yet. I mean, Liverpool, um, Jurgen Klopp's been been complaining uh, about fixture congestion. Obviously, um, tomorrow he is a beneficiary of that. In that, lesser are the team that are <laughs> lesser have to turn up, having been. Um, pummeled by City two days later they've got to go and play Liverpool who haven't had a game over Christmas this is incredibly unfair uh, yeah it is um, I mean I guess it's always happened um, I mean I've been doing a lot of research recently on the 60s and it's kind of incredible to look at you know, the end of those seasons I mean especially when Leeds were you know Leeds would be kind of flying in the in the FA Cup of the league and the European Cup or the first cup and they'd suddenly hit, hit the end of March and they'd have to play sort of you know and a, dozen, they, a dozen games in four weeks did they have more games um, pos- are we talking here about postponements or replays like did they have more but games both. postponed yeah, because it, like is Elland Road like at altitude or something like that I mean did they have frozen pitches more often than like other teams was there some reason why they you know because it, it is maybe it's just that Leeds were kind of in all the competitions yeah. until the latter stages and they just that, had, that's exactly it they, yeah. they were in the competitions until the latter stages um, I mean yeah I think it's 69-70 where it's <laughs> it's properly stupid that they um, I think they play the the cup final on the Saturday and then they, they've got their the second leg of a European Cup semi-final against Celtic, yeah, you know, on the following Tuesday, um, having already played sort of five games in the previous fortnight, um, so uh, yeah, this has always happened. But I, I, I guess it, it's we've got used to it not happening, and it it's, it feels unfair now, uh, particularly with this, you know, this random factor of COVID, which seems to allow some teams to call games off, and other teams not to. And nobody seems to be able to get a straight answer. Of, of what the parameters are that allow you to call the game off, um, and I think, yeah, Crystal Palace, Leeds, um, Chelsea, Chelsea have, have felt pretty let Agreed. down by that. Yeah, well, I mean, it's it, it is an interesting situation where there's, there's it, it, it's evidently not a clear, you know. Um, the, you know, clear criteria because everybody seems to think they have a case until the Premier League says you, you, not you, you have to play, 
you can have two weeks off. <laughs> it's complete nonsense. Like, yeah, no, I mean it is. It is a nonsense because I mean the fact that we can't get an explanation of what the rule is <laughs> suggests it's just not clear. I mean, of course, in you know, I guess um, you're also dependent on medical departments to be totally honest. Yeah, which is yeah, also I mean, nonsense. But I mean, you know, that that game when Leeds were uh, beaten by Arsenal. What was to stop them saying, like, really sorry, but yeah, th- three of the lads have been in close contact, so we're going to have to not play this. I mean, how how closely monitored is that? Yeah. Um, and, and clearly, they were <laughs> they they were disadvantaged by by not having had a COVID case with all the other injuries they had. Yeah, I would trust Marcelo Bielsa's leads not to break any rules that exist. <laughs> um. Well. Yeah, I, of all the managers, I think he is the one with the most integrity, which yeah. weirdly seems to get him into more trouble than other managers. But, yeah. yeah, I mean, a rule that doesn't exist, like, you know, you're you're not allowed to spy on the other team's training ground, which nobody's ever thought to write down. He would break that rule. But but uh, but if it's, yeah, although maybe, you know, I don't know. But sorry, anyway, Leeds, have, Leeds have, have taken as much damage as possible. Although their game is off, their, their, their next game is off. Uh, Manchester United are going to be playing tonight, um, as far as we know. Uh, I see Ralph Rangnick uh, has added his voice to the to the chorus of German voices, uh, clamoring for uh, five substitutions in, in the in the current circumstances. Do your hackles rise as an Englishman to hear all these Germans demanding rational, positive change in English football? <laughs> um, I mean, the, the nationality obviously is neither here nor there. But just to make that clear, but it is right. Uh, it is, just to, just to make it clear again, those Germans are Ralph Rangnick, Thomas Tuchel. And Jurgen Klopp, all of us are saying, "Give us fünf substitutions, bitte." Yeah, and then they they happen to be members of the gross fear, um, who have bigger squads and so benefit most from that. So, um, I, I I see the logic in five subs. Uh, I, I think I would be opposed to that generally. I think in the in the current situation, as an emergency measure, I think it's probably not the daftest thing. I mean, I think there's something actually generally going on with injuries. And I know these things are notoriously, I mean, they're, they're sort of impossible to, to prove causation, but this, this season, even before you know, this, 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 this current wave of the pandemic, seemed to be a season more affected by injuries than, than others. The fact that Leeds, Leicester um, have been ap- you know, absolutely hammered by, by injuries. Like Brighton, um, you know, their injury list uh, I mean, they're not, not you know they, they obviously had a load of players back yesterday, but before that they'd had uh, an entire defence out. Um, even the fact that West Ham, I mean, and I know that it's not a huge number of injuries, but losing Ogbonna and Zuma and Cresswell has caused them real problems. Um, so, uh, I mean, Southampton have had huge problems. I mean, when they went to Arsenal, they had, I mean, they, they had to sign Caballero on loan, but they were out another sort of half dozen players. So it, it, I don't know if this is a, a cumulative effect of trying to squeeze essentially three and a half seasons into three seasons. That I mean, obviously Liverpool suffered with injuries last season, um, and maybe there is a sort of a build-up of if you know if you force players to play too many games in too short a period of time over a spell of two or three years, maybe maybe more than do break down. Mm, uh, okay, well, uh, we are going to see hopefully some more games happening over the next uh, few days. But um, there's something else to talk about here, Jonathan, which is uh, um, I received an early Christmas present this year uh, in the form, well, actually, not of a copy of 
your book, your new novel, I should say, Streltsov, but in the form of a PDF of said novel, uh, the book having failed to arrive. <laughs> for, I yes, don't know. So some failure of our collective postal services. I don't know what's going on. I don't know what's going on with the with the post. But um, you have written a novel about, uh, well, it's called Streltsov. It's about, I guess, Edward, Edward Streltsov, the uh, great uh, Soviet player of the, well, the 1950s, really. Um, why has he always been a figure of fascination for you? Well, I, I mean, I suppose I should explain briefly his story. So he he comes through, he's, he's sort of um, uh, an Erling Haaland figure, that he's just sort of bigger than everybody else and quicker and stronger and scores these ridiculous goals where... He just barges through six players and lashes in the top corner. He's a superman. Yeah, but he's also very good looking. Um, he develops very, very early. Uh, he scores a hat-trick in, in each of his first two appearances for, for the USSR. And Sorry, he scored a hat-trick on each of his first two. Yeah. That's pretty good. Yeah. Uh, one against Sweden and one against India. So one against India maybe is not such a big deal, but uh, still, you know, he's. I think he was... Uh, 16, 17 when he did that but yeah, very young um, and he sort of becomes a, a bit of a celebrity, he's part of the squad that wins the Olympics in 56 he almost single-handedly wins the semi-final when they're down to nine men because of injury and then he's left out of the final because his strike partner was injured and, and Gavel Kachalan the, the national coach, liked his front two to, to play together at club level um, and so everybody assumes the 58 World Cup is going to be his great, yeah, he's 19, it's going to be uh, that's going to be his stage when he really announces himself to the world in the way that Pele subsequently does. Um, but on the, 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 the final day of training, uh, before the World Cup at the training camp, they then go into Moscow to, to get their suits. He goes for a drink afterwards, ends up going to a party at the Dasha that night, and the following morning he's arrested and charged with rape. And he ends up serving six years in the Gulag. Now... There's significant doubt as to whether he did it. Uh, so Gary Kasparov, among others, uh, but he's the, you know, he's the most famous of them, sort of has led this campaign to, to get him a posthumous pardon. And you see, he then comes out of the Gulag, is banned for a couple of years, comes back and wins the league twice and is named Soviet Player of the Year, which is, you know, the, 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 I, I mean, I don't want to say redemption because if he's a rapist, I'm not really sure that is redemption, but it is an extraordinary comeback. Um, it's certainly true that uh, he had offended people within the Soviet government uh, who felt he was too individualistic. Um, I think his, his drinking had become a problem, that, that uh, he began to neglect, neglect certain responsibilities. So uh, Soviet Union, for instance, they had a, had a playoff against Poland to qualify for the World Cup in '58, And he would have only been like 20, 21 years old at that stage. He was 18. He was 18. In, in 1958? Well, in 58, he was 19, but the playoff was 57, so he was 18 for the right. playoff. And he, he missed the train. The, the game was in Leipzig, this playoff. And he, he missed the train. They had to hold up the train. He got in a taxi and chased it. Um, and so, you know, he, he, he'd sort of gone off the rails a bit. Um, and so there's all this sort of, uh, all these suggestions that maybe, maybe he was set up. Now, yeah, if you, if you really press me, do I think he did it? Yeah, I do, uh, having gone through the KGB files. Um, but what's certainly true is the investigation was not particularly well conducted. Um, and there, there, there are certain elements of doubt, I guess. And obviously part of the problem is that forensics in those days, they could tell you 
Uh, they tell you a blood group, but they couldn't give you DNA. So um, the woman he's alleged to have raped, Marina Lebedeva, she certainly had sex that night with somebody of the same blood group as him. Whether it was consensual, whether it was him, it is, is the, yeah, that, 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 that's the question. So it, it struck me when I first heard that story, it's actually very like um, the, the incident in the Malabar Caves in Passage to India, to bring it back to David Lean rather neatly, um, with Dr. Aziz, and did, did he... Yeah, did he commit the rape? Did he not? It's this sort of great sort of mystery at the centre of it. And I think once you stop trying to solve it, once you sort of accept it's a mystery, then you know, a lot of quite interesting things happen. So the story is told through the eyes of a functionary at the club. So it's partly about um, you know, what, what, what is it to be a functionary at a club who has this figure you revere and then the chaos when suddenly he's arrested uh, so there's you know, the, the drama, the court case and everything, but also um, it, it's, it's about perceptions of reality and how, how you know, can you ever actually know the truth? Yeah. This question of the unknowability of things is a theme in the book. Uh, yeah, exactly. You're yeah. writing, uh, the, you grasp at the details, I said, boy, this is what age does to you. What you think you know, it turns out you've constructed later, often from misremembered or misinterpreted details. Did you ever know to start with or did you just read it? This is not simply an account of of your work process uh, doing uh, Guardian pieces, <laughs> but, but a more general comment on, on uh, yeah, the difficulty of ever really nailing things down. Yeah, I, and, and I, you know, the fact that there's a, a court case at the middle of it where, you know, we support, you know in theory, you do get to the truth in a court case. That that seemed quite a nice a nice metaphor for that idea. Uh, I sort of, I, I I mean, this is going to sound terribly pretentious, but the older I get, the more I sort of think that most writing is actually about how you, yeah, you know, no writing can ever be true. So it's um, all fiction. This isn't. This is not your first work of fiction. It's your. It's, <laughs> all the it's previous first... ones have been fictional as well. First conscious work of fiction, I guess. But you know, it, it's the the unknowability of memory and the problems of memory and, and uh, you know things you think you remember clearly and then you you check them and uh, it turns out to be very different. Well, congratulations on the book. Do you have any more um, any more novels? Do you think in, in the pipeline? Did you find it more interesting to to write something which you know kind of imaginative in this way? Uh, imaginative is a suggests that the previous books have not also been imagined it is different because you're very specific you know, you're, you're trying to internalize it or you're, you're trying to put yourself into the interior of somebody else that you're, you're trying to say you know, how would this figure have regarded this how would he have have dealt with this what you know what was his life like uh and, I, and actually one of the th- you know when i went through the editing process which was a really i mean a very very fortunate a friend of mine a novelist richard beard he, he edited it for free just because he was bored um and a lot of his suggestions were taking out detail. You know, there's a tendency to sort of log detail, and you know, you just you know, it just needs to be impressionistic. You don't have to kind of uh, go into huge amounts of detail. And I think that's one of the differences between mm. fiction and non-fiction. In non-fiction, you're you're on the outside trying to build up the story through each tiny little tile of, of data that, that you can find. Mm. Whereas fiction, you're you're on the inside, just you know, trying to express what that would have felt like to him at the time. Yeah, and have you attempted to to um, use this form maybe on, on forthcoming stuff? I mean, I know that you're doing a book about Jack Charlton, uh, or the is it, uh, is it about the, 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 the Charlton brothers? brothers? The, the Charlton brothers, yeah. So you know, what about uh, what about doing this one as a novel? 
Well, I was, I mean, I was commissioned as a, as a non-fiction book, so lots of editor would go with it. No, look, it was, it was, it was good to do it because it's a different discipline. It just sort of, you know, it's it's just fun to change things sometimes. Um, but you know, they they are they are different. Uh, they they are different, and I, I think um, just on a very practical level, um, doing you know, as David Peace found, writing fiction about people who are still alive. Mm. It's pretty awkward and tricky and difficult. Um, yeah. I think there's plenty of stuff with Jack Charlton, well, and Bobby, of other people's memories of them. Um, I mean, memory, of course, with the two of them becomes uh, you know, a massive issue as well, doesn't it? Yeah. Um, so, yeah, am I tempted to do other novels? Yeah, I wouldn't mind. Let's see how this one goes. I mean, you could you know, bring them out. It, same set, sort of. Each one has a footballer surname title. You could be like Luca Caoli for New Statesman <laughs> readers. <laughs> well, I, yeah, I've got a, there's a couple of ideas I think would would work. I, I think this was the um, of the ideas I've got. This is definitely the the most pared back, the the, the slimmest volume. Uh, but we'll see how it goes. I mean, if it sells, great. I mean, you know, it was um, uh, the Observer's list of, of novels to read in 2022. It was it was on that yesterday, which is very kind of them. Very kind. Uh, didn't have to do that, so. Um, yeah, and you, you know, it's also the problem. It's essentially self-published. Yeah, I published it through Blizzard. Yeah. So it's not in any bookshops, but you can order it from a Blizzard website. And you can order it on Amazon as well, but I get more money if you go through the Blizzard website, so please do that. And don't take yeah. Ken's postal problems as being indicative of our general level of service. No, you know, they've, uh, they, uh, they're getting out there somehow. Uh, I see people, uh, people with photographs uh, of them on social media. I'm not one of those people, uh, but maybe one day. Jonathan Wilson been a pleasure as always talking to you this Christmas. Cheers, happy Christmas. Ronaldo, when I met Ronaldo, it was just a dream come true and he said to me, are you okay? Because I was honestly, I was crying. Happy tears. That's not for me. The girl who got Ronaldo's shirt was on the Late Late Show. Christmas is for kids. Which, by the way, I don't agree with. Oh, it's so annoying though. These kids, but why do they need to be on the pitch? The pitch is for the players, the team, and the supporters. Come on. <laughs> Children who invade the pitch are, are being invited onto the Late Late Show and showered with gifts. No, not for me. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. 
It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.